So I want to welcome you to worship this morning. If we haven't met, my name is Jason Carlson. I'm the senior pastor here at Lakes Free. I want to say a special hello to all of you watching online this morning as well, and to uh, those of you downstairs in our family-friendly venue. Uh, we're so glad you're with us today. And uh, what, a great, uh, what a great morning. God is so good. It's so good to be gathered together as his people, to sing his praises, and to have the opportunity once again to turn to his word and uh, study his truth. Today we're going to be looking at a great story in the Gospel of John, uh, a story that John the Apostle describes as the first of Jesus' signs, the first of Jesus' signs. And John uses that term sign to refer to the miracles of Jesus Christ. I'll share more about that with us in a moment. Before we begin this morning, I want to have a word of prayer together. Let's ask God's blessing as we turn to the Word together today and uh, ask Him to prepare our hearts and uh, humble ourselves before Him as we uh, learn what He has to share with us today. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful to be here. We're so thankful for all that You're doing in this place. And it's such a joy and privilege to come into your presence and worship you each and every Sunday morning, and especially today as we uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper and reflect on your great sacrifice for us. And now today, God, as we turn once again to your word, we thank you for this testament that the Apostle John has given us about the life and, and meaning of Jesus and why he came into this world, and all that he's done for us, and who he is, and his great power, and how that power has the opportunity, and the, the reality of being able to change our lives as well. And so, Lord, I just pray that as we look at this great story today, that you would open our eyes, you would open our hearts, you would open our spirits to what you have to encourage us with, and instruct us with, and, and admonish us with. And I pray, God, that we would take these truths to heart and leave here walking in greater faith and faithfulness. We commit this time to you, Lord Jesus. We pray all this in your great name. Amen. Well, friends, let me ask you a question this morning. What's the most important thing you've ever run out of? Think about that for a moment. What's the most important thing you've ever run out of? Earlier this summer, I was up in northern Wisconsin fishing with my brother and my son, Caleb, and we were out on this really far-out remote wilderness lake. It's a, it's a lake that uh, very few people go on. There's no, ho there's no homes or cabins on this lake. It's out in the middle of nowhere, and uh, we were out fishing on this lake for the, uh, for the evening, and uh, we were the only people on this lake. Uh, we launched our boat from the boat launch, and we headed out uh, probably a good mile or so away from the boat launch, and we ended up fishing for about two, three hours, and daylight started, you know, uh, waning, and the sun was going down, and we thought, okay, it's probably time for us to start heading in, and I went to start my uh, motor on my outboard and my 30-horsepower uh, Evernwood motor. I pushed the starting button, and all I heard was, rawr, 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 rawr. And I'm thinking, uh-oh, what's going on here? Pushed it again. And so I got my battery tester out, and I went to check my starting motor, and, or my starting battery, and the starting battery for my fishing boat was completely dead. I had, uh, I had no recourse. In fact, I usually keep a spare rope to, to start the motor by hand, and I'm digging through my, my fishing boat. I couldn't find the spare rope anywhere. And so now I'm thinking, okay, what do I do? How do I get this boat started? I mean, we're literally like a mile away from the boat launch. It's getting dark. All I had left at this point was my trolling motor and a paddle. 
So I jokingly said to Caleb, I hope you know how to swim because we might need you to pull us back all the way to the boat launch this, this, this evening. Well, fortunately, I, I started up my trolling motor and we ended up putting our way against the wind, against the waves for literally about an hour it took us by trolling motor to get back to the boat launch. It had gotten dark, we could barely see, but, but we made it back. And you know, it was interesting, I was thinking about that experience running out of power, running out of battery juice that afternoon as we were fishing. And, you know, I I think a lot of us here, probably all of us here, can relate to the reality of running out of a precious commodity. You know, I think we've all run out of something valuable at different times in our lives, Whether, whether it's running out of time, running out of daylight, running out of money, running out of, uh, uh, gas, we've all run out of a precious commodity. In fact, uh, in recent months, a few months back, some of us began running out of toilet paper, right? And, and uh, you know, there are just some things in life that you don't want to run out of. Well, this morning, we're going to look at a story in the Gospel of John, as I said a moment ago, the first of Jesus' signs, the first of his miraculous works. And it's a story about an event about a family, really about an entire community that had run out of a precious commodity. It was a commodity that we often don't think of as being all that valuable because in our day and age it's a fairly common commodity and and it's not highly prized and valued like it was in Jesus' day. But in this particular setting, this scene, this event had run out of a precious and valuable commodity, and that had huge implications. Had implications for the family involved, had implications for the entire community, and it was a very serious problem, as we're going to see this morning. This is the first of Jesus' signs, according to the Apostle John. John uses the term sign throughout his gospel in reference to the miracles of Jesus, and he is the only of the four gospels that refer to Jesus' miracles as signs. He's the only apostle that uses that term to refer to Jesus' miracles. And because, the reason he does that is because John recognizes in Jesus' miracles more than just pure works of power. More more than just physical manifestations of God's glory. John, as we're going to see throughout our series, recognizes in Jesus' miracles signs, significance underneath the display of power that had deeper meaning, deeper, deep, a deeper message to teach us. And so this morning, we're going to look at this sign. We're going to see the miraculous work of Christ, but we're going to come to see that there's something greater at work here in this miracle than just purely a display of Jesus' power. This morning, we're going to look at our passage together. It's John chapter two, uh, 12, I'm sorry, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And in our passage this morning, we're going to look at the miracle, we're going to look at the means of the miracle, and then we're going to look at the message of the miracle. Let me read our passage for us this morning, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, (coughs) excuse me, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Excuse me. 
<coughs> I ate a granola bar right before coming in to preach. Not a good idea. Jesus said to Mary, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of Jesus' signs. Jesus did it at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. It's a great story. It's It's an incredible miracle, Jesus transforming this water into wine. And this morning, I want to look at three things. I want to look at the miracle. I want to look at the means by which Jesus performed this miracle. And I want to talk about the message that lies underneath this miracle. John calls this a sign. There's a deeper meaning here than just this display of power. The the first lesson we see here in our passage is in regards to the miracle itself. Jesus' transformation of, of water into wine. And in verse 3 of our passage this morning, we see the the fundamental problem that was going on here in this story. Here, Jesus and his mother and his disciples were at this large wedding feast. And and when I say a large wedding feast, we have to understand that in this culture here in Cana of Galilee, this would have been a large wedding feast. When weddings took place in the ancient world, it was often a week-long event. There was the the actual wedding ceremony, but instead of a honeymoon, there would be a week-long celebration, a week-long party for the newlywed couple where Everyone in the community would be invited. It was a huge social event. And and so all of the friends, all of the neighbors of this family, even people who didn't necessarily like these people, would have been invited and would have been expected to attend. And the family involved in this marriage would have been expected to provide the utmost, the greatest, the best of hospitality. And that would include providing an abundance of wine for all the guests who would show up over the course of the seven days of celebration. And so here, as we start out our passage, we discover there's a problem. There's a problem at this wedding celebration. In verse 3, the wine has run out. Mary comes and reports to Jesus. Now, now we don't know why Mary herself was so concerned about this situation. Some people speculate that maybe this wedding involves a family member of Jesus. Uh, tradition says it was one of Jesus' cousins, and so Mary, as the, the aunt of this newlywed bride, is concerned about this woman and her family who have run out of wine. But we need to understand, friends, in the ancient culture of first century Judaism, this was a big deal to run out of wine. It was funny, I was thinking about this passage this past week, and, you know, I, I grew up in a, in a Baptist home, 
And in my strict Baptist upbringing, we had no alcohol in our family whatsoever. I mean, alcohol was, was frowned upon in every way, shape, and form. In fact, I remember one time my, my mom's aunt came to visit us, and uh, she went to the liquor store, and she respected our family's wishes on alcohol, but she bought a six-pack of near beer. And uh, she brought that over, and that was a big deal in our family, right? Non-alcoholic beer. And I remember my dad, you know, growing up, telling my brother, if I ever catch you guys drinking, you're going to get it, right? Well, he, he was a little shocked when we married women who grew up in families with a little bit more uh, openness towards alcohol, and, and bottles of wine occasionally showed up at the dinner table at special events and holidays and things like that. But uh, it was interesting, when I went to seminary, you know, I had grown up with this strict view of no alcohol whatsoever. My dad used to try to make the argument that the Greek word for wine, oinos, actually refers to grape juice. That, that was what I was taught growing up, that every time you hear about wine in the Bible, it's just referring to grape juice. And so I remember going to seminary, and the first time one of my professors started talking about wine, I raised my hand like Mr. Know-it-all and shared with my seminary professor, well, you know, professor, he's really talking about grape juice here, not wine. And I almost got laughed out of the seminary that afternoon when I uh, made that point. Uh, the reality is when the Bible talks about wine, the wine they used in the ancient world was actually stronger than any wine we have today. In fact, it was typically so strong, it wasn't a matter of not having enough alcohol in it. It was more the matter of they would often dilute it with water to make sure that it wasn't too strong for people to drink. But, but it's important to understand, friends, the Bible actually has a very positive view of wine. Okay? Now, the Bible clearly teaches against drunkenness. That, that's a sin according to God's word. Drinking to excess is clearly a sin, but at the same time, wine is viewed very positively throughout Scripture. In fact, when you read the Old Testament, you will come across dozens, if not hundreds, of references to wine. In, in the Old Testament, for example, wine is seen as a symbol of celebration, a symbol of blessing, a symbol of hospitality, and mostly it is seen as a symbol of joy. I've put a few passages up on the screen that just highlight these realities for you. You can look these up for yourselves. But over and over again, we find throughout Scripture, wine is seen especially as a symbol of joy. In fact, in the first century, the rabbis at Jesus' time actually had a saying, without wine, there is no joy. Wine was seen as a, a metaphor, a symbol of a life full of joy. Without wine, there is no joy. Now, now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, why was, why was wine such a big deal in this context, right? I mean, why is it such a big deal here at this wedding celebration? Why was it such a big deal at all in the biblical worldview? Well, friends, I want you to think about this. In a culture, in a land where fresh water is scarce, where, where people would draw their tepid water from, from wells or from cisterns. Do you know what a cistern is, friends? A cistern is a huge hole that would be carved into the bedrock, and then when it would rain, all the water would flow into the cistern, and they would use that collected water to draw up with buckets drinking water or, or water for co cooking or cleaning, right? Friends, think about that. What else besides the water is flowing into that cistern? I mean, everything else around it, right? The animal waste, all the dirt, all the debris. And this is where people would get their drinking water. So, so why was wine a big deal? 
Well, you need to understand when you recognize the reality of, of, of where water came from most often in the ancient world, you can begin to see why wine was such a source of blessing, why it was such a source of joy. And it was deemed especially essential for events, for special events like weddings that required the utmost hospitality towards your guests. In fact, in first century Jewish culture, the absence of wine at, at a great social event like a wedding, it was simply unthinkable. I mean, you would not hold an event like this without an abundance of wine to offer your guests. And if you were to run out of wine, this would bring shame and disgrace upon your family. It, it could lead to a breakdown in relationships within the community because your guests have been offended and they would forever view you as the family that didn't provide hospitality when you were invited to their wedding, to their celebration. And not only would it bring shame and the possibility of broken relationships, in first century Judaism, friends, I kid you not, you could literally bring a lawsuit against a family if they didn't provide enough wine for a celebration like this. Can you imagine that, going to a wedding and they don't have an open bar and you can sue them for that? Right? I mean, that was the law in first century Israel. And so here in this story, this was a big deal. This family had run out of wine. And, and as Pastor Kent Hughes notes in his commentary on John, Hughes says we could very well translate Mary's words as they have no joy. They've run out of wine, but the reality for this whole situation, it was far more significant than that. They had run out of joy. Wine was gone, but with that, so was the joy. And with a lack of joy, friends, came a threat of broken fellowship, the likelihood of fractured relationships, the real possibility of civil discord within this community. Sounds a lot like our world today, doesn't it? broken relationships, disunity, civil discord. This past year in our own nation, we've witnessed riots and racial turmoil and divisive politics. A world without joy. Maybe you're here this morning and you too feel like your joy has run out. I have no joy. Maybe you're dealing with the 2020 blues after all that we've been through in this past year. And you too can relate to the feeling of this family, this wedding party, the guests, the joy has run out. Friends, what's the solution for a world whose joy has run out? Well, we find the answer in the response of Mary. I love Mary's response when she discovers that the wine has run out, that the joy has run out. What does Mary do? Mary turns to Jesus. She turns to Jesus. Why? Because Mary, more than any other person at this event, knew the reality of who Jesus truly was. More than anyone else there that day, Mary knew who Jesus was. If you think back, friends, to those great stories of the nativity found in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, we, we read in the stories of the nativity, the stories of Christmas, how angels announced to Joseph and then the Virgin Mary and, and Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, and then shepherds in the fields outside of Bethlehem. These angels made these grand announcements of the arrival of the Son of God. 
The Son of God has come into the world in fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament, prophecies like Isaiah 7:14, that a virgin will be with child. And this child won't be any child. This will be the Son of God, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Friends, Mary turned to Jesus because she understood who Jesus truly was. Emmanuel, God with us. And think about this. John says this was the first of Jesus' signs. Here's Jesus. He's returned to Galilee. He's got disciples with him. Mary knows that he's been prophesied. She was told by an angel of God he is going to be the Messiah. And for 30 years, Mary held this secret. Mary held this secret. Luke 2.19 says that as a young woman, she treasured up all of these things that she had been told and pondered them in her heart. And now for 30 years, after holding this secret to herself, after, after all of the friends and family in her community and the disparaging looks and the, the secretive comments and the gossip about who was this young boy's father, all of those years, Mary now believed the time had come for the world to truly discover who her son really was. Her divinely conceived son. The, the one who was truly the son of God, the creator of the world, the word present at the wedding. And now the time has come for Jesus to unveil his glory to all. Mary knew that if anyone could avert this looming crisis, if anyone could restore joy to this dire situation... It was Jesus. Friends, let me ask you this morning, where do you turn to look for joy? When your joys run out, where, where do you turn to find joy? Do you look for joy in, in alcohol and drugs? Do you look for joy in pornography and illicit sexual encounters? Do you look for joy in, in shopping and material possessions? Do you look for joy in, in your social media accounts? Do you, do you look for joy in, in sporting events? I know most of you are Minnesota fans. That's certainly not the case. <laughs> but where do you look for joy, friends? Are you looking for joy in the stuff of this world? Have you found it? Have you found true joy? I bet you haven't. Because the stuff of this world ultimately leaves us unfulfilled. The Bible tells us that true joy is only found by turning to Jesus. Emmanuel. God with us. But then we see Jesus' curious response here in verse 4. Jesus responds to his mother's appeal. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It's an interesting response, isn't it? And I believe for most of us, we immediately have two questions that come to mind. Number one, why in the world was, is Jesus referring to his mother as woman? I mean, that just, that just sounds very harsh, very blunt. I mean, I would never address my mother that way. Woman, you want me to take my laundry downstairs to the laundry room? Woman, you want me to wash my dishes? See, in our, in our modern era, we don't address women of authority, women we should be loving and respecting in terms like woman. However, we need to recognize in the original Greek language and in first century Jewish culture, this was really a term of respect. 
It was a term of endearment. It, it would be the equivalent in our English language of, of calling a, a, a woman ma'am or, or madame or, or my lady. These were terms of respect and endearment. In fact, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, as we'll see at the end of the Gospel of John, as Jesus is dying on the cross, he looks at his mother with love and says, woman, your son, and he gives his mother Mary to the apostle John to be cared for now that Jesus is leaving. And so Jesus refers to his mother as woman, not out of a disrespectful tone, but this was a sign of respect in this culture. The second question that comes from Jesus' response, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What, what is this hour that Jesus refers to here? Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. Friends, this is the first of nine references in the Gospel of John to Jesus' hour. This is a term that we'll see Jesus use repeatedly. John will use this term repeatedly. This is a very important term in the Apostle John's Gospel. The hour that Jesus is referring here to here is the hour of which Jesus' whole ministry is moving towards. Jesus' whole life of 33 years was moving towards a particular hour. And that hour that Jesus is referring to here is the hour of his death, of his resurrection, of his exaltation to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And so we need to recognize in Jesus' response here what Jesus is doing when he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus is making clear to Mary that his marching orders in this world were coming from a higher source. Look at you're, you're my earthly mother. You, you, Mary, were uniquely blessed to be the, the bearer of the Messiah, but I don't follow your marching orders, Mary. I answer to a higher source, my Father in heaven. And Jesus was making clear that his timetable was running on a very different schedule than Mary's. You see, Mary wanted a, a Messiah who would be revealed to the world, but Jesus knew his hour had not yet come. And it wasn't that Jesus didn't care about Mary's appeals for help. But again, his motivations, his priorities were very different from hers. She wanted a Messiah revealed. He understood God's plan was that the Messiah would remain concealed for a time. His hour had not yet come. The time to fully reveal himself to the world had not yet come. But then I love Mary's response to Jesus. In verse 5, Mary responds to the servants there gathered at the wedding, do whatever he tells you. Now, now, some commentators suggest that this is Mary, a, a bold Jewish mother, saying, all right, whatever, Jesus, you're going to do this miracle whether you like it or not. Do whatever, you, he, do whatever he tells you. But I don't think that was Mary's attitude at all in this situation. I, I think what Mary was doing here was exercising an incredible display of faith in the sovereignty and divine perfect will and plan of God. Jesus says, woman, my, my hour has not yet come. And then Mary turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. See, Mary trusted in Jesus by faith, even though God's plan wasn't her plan. She, she wanted the Messiah to be revealed in a grand way, but that wasn't God's plan. And so Mary here understood that even when the Lord's response to us is different from what we desire, he is always faithful. 
and his response is always good. Mary says, do whatever he says. Friends, we can learn an important lesson from Mary here. See, God doesn't always answer our appeals the way we desire, but he does answer. He always answers. Sometimes God's answer is, yes, yes, I will meet your need. I will answer your calls for help. Sometimes God's answer is no. And sometimes God's answer is, you need to wait. The hour has not yet come. But friends, we can be confident that every time we turn to God, He answers. And His answer is always the best, and it's always for our ultimate and eternal good in light of His perfect will for our lives. Let me ask you this morning, friends, do you share Mary's trust? Do you share Mary's trust this morning? That even when you turn to God and, and, and you don't think He's answering your request for help in the, in the way that you would like, can you, like Mary, say, I'll follow, do whatever He says. I'll trust Him. His ways are always good. Now, of course, we see in our story this morning that Jesus goes on and, and he intervenes in this situation. He ends up performing this miracle. He ends up transforming the water into wine. He ends up turning water into not just any kind of wine, but according to the master of ceremonies, the, the best of wine. You, you saved the best until last. And there's a couple more lessons that we can see here in this sign that John reveals. The, the second lesson I want to see this morning is, is, is the means by which this miracle is accomplished. And this is so encouraging for us today as we think about how God works in our lives, how God is at work here in, in our church, Lakes Free. One of the things I find most interesting here in this whole story is, is the means by which Jesus performs this miracle. If you remember back in John chapter 1, which we've looked at the last couple of weeks, right? All the way back in the beginning of John chapter 1 in the prologue to John's gospel, John talks about Jesus as the Word, that, that eternal force, that, that creator who made the whole universe. Jesus, John says, in him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. John makes the claim that Jesus is the creator of all things, and now here, Jesus is at this wedding. He's the word at the wedding. And the, the wine has run out. The joy has run out. This is a dire social situation here for this family and for everybody involved. And friends, Jesus literally could have snapped his fingers and turned the water into wine. He could have just simply spoken it into existence. And in the blink of an eye, the wedding could have had an abundance of the finest wines in the whole world, but that's not how Jesus chose to work this miracle, was it? Jesus points to these servants there at the wedding. He points to these common, lowly servants at the wedding, and he says, you see these six stone jars over here? I, I want you to take those jars, and I want you to fill them with water. And, and then, after you fill those with water, I want you to take them to the master of ceremonies. And so here we see how, how God uses the servants at the wedding as the means by which he accomplishes this miracle. And friends, there's an important point for us to recognize in this reality. Here's the point, don't miss it. God does some of his greatest miracles by exercising his power through our manpower. 
Think about that all throughout Scripture, all throughout history, all throughout the history of Lakes Free Church. Friends, haven't we seen that time and time again? God does some of his greatest miracles by exercising his power through our manpower. God often uses average, ordinary servants to accomplish extraordinary things. We see this in stories like Moses and Moses' staff that he holds up while the Israelites go into battle. We see this in David, the, the little shepherd boy who faces down Goliath with a sling. We see this in, in, in Esther, and we see this in the stories of Mary. We see this in the story of Simon Peter and his fishing that over and over again throughout the Bible. We see God using average, ordinary people, working his power through their manpower. And friends, sometimes God calls us to very incredible challenges because he wants us to be a part of his miracles. I just want you to think about what Jesus is asking of these servants here in this story, right? Jesus says, take these six stone water jars, each of them holding 20 to 30 gallons. First and foremost, that's a big jar, all right? These aren't, these aren't little, you know, canning jars we're talking about. These are, these are probably three, four foot tall, wide stone carved jars that would have been heavy without any water in them. And then these servants had to take these large jars and carry them outside to the well. Who knows how far away that was? Carry these stone jars down to the well and then lower bucket after bucket down to the well, pull the buckets up, fill the, fill the jar, drop the bucket again, pull the bucket up again, fill the jar, pull the bucket up again, fill the jar over and over again. And now they have to carry these 20, 30 gallon jars back up to the wedding to present to the master of ceremonies. Now think about this. First and foremost, these servants are probably thinking to themselves, Jesus, we don't need water. We need wine. <laughs> all right? The, the water's not the problem. We got all the water we can handle. We, we need wine, Jesus. And then they must have thought to themselves, why on earth are we doing this? I, I mean, we, we got to carry these heavy jars and fill them with water. And I mean, I mean, this would have been a process that probably took a significant amount of time and definitely took a significant amount of manpower. But these servants obeyed. They, they followed Mary's instructions. Do whatever he tells you. And, and they obeyed and they went and they filled these jars with water. And as a result, they had an insider's view to one of the greatest miracles in Jesus' ministry. Friends, just think what would happen had these servants not obeyed. Had these servants not followed Jesus' command. They would have missed out on this incredible miracle. Sadly, today, so many Christians miss out on the miracles because they're not willing to be the means by which God accomplishes the miracle. Have you ever thought about that, friends? You know, I want to encourage you this morning, do you share the faith of these servants? If God were to call you to, to an area of service in your life, maybe, maybe to an outreach in our community, maybe an area of service here in our church, Maybe something that, in your view, seems very hard. Uh, it, it, it's a real stretch to even think about being involved in something like that. And if God were to call you, would you step out in faith, believing that you might just be the means to a miracle that God wants to accomplish? It was interesting. I heard a story recently of a pastor friend in another church 
shared an incredible story about a man who for about a year had been wrestling with the possibility of serving as an usher at his church. And, and this guy, you know, he, just, he had been invited to serve as an usher and he had heard the announcements, we need help with ushers. And, and this guy just, his heart wasn't in it, but he kept feeling the tug, you know. And so finally he gave in and decided, okay, fine, I'm going to go serve as an usher. And it was kind of a pain because he had to show up a half hour early every Sunday and, you know. But he ended up serving. And he ended up serving with great joy. He ended up becoming a, a great welcomer to people coming into this church. And in fact... As the story goes, one family that he ended up welcoming on a Sunday morning was so overwhelmed by his gracious hospitality and his assistance of their family that this family ended up sticking around at that church forever. They became permanent members of this church. The, the mother of this family, who had once been visitors, now permanent members, ended up becoming one of the chief volunteers in this church's children's ministry a key part of what they were doing in their children's ministry. And years later, guess what happened? That woman ended up leading the usher's grandson to Jesus. That usher was the means for God's miracle in his grandson's life, and he didn't even know it at the time. Friends, we could talk about stories like that all day long. We have all kinds of stories like that here at Lakes Free Church. God using average, ordinary people as the means to accomplish his miracles. I want to challenge us this morning, church. Do we share the faith of these servants? Are we willing to let God use us to be the means for his miracles? Thirdly, this morning, we see the message here in this sign. And as I mentioned a while ago, signs in John's gospel point to a deeper significance behind the miracle. There, there was a meaning deeper than just turning water into wine here. And it's no mistake that John shares the detail that he does here in verse 6. He says, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. John makes it very clear that the, the water jars that were present there at this wedding were used by the Jews for ritual ceremonial washings. In fact, in Judaism at the time of Jesus, the, the, the priority of outward cleanliness was paramount. We, we see this in Mark's gospel in chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. We see the importance of cleaning and purification for the Jews. For them, cleaning and outward purification had been, become the means to pleasing God. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels, dining couches. And the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And Jesus said, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. See, what had happened at the time of Jesus, friends, is the Jews had become obsessed with religion, with outward rituals, with outward acts of purification. And in their obsession with outward rituals and outward purification, they had lost sight of what God truly desires from us. Hearts, hearts that are humbled before him. As the prophet Samuel says in, in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 16, the Lord sees not as man sees. 
Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God wants humbled hearts, repentant hearts, purified hearts. That's his goal for our lives. And the message here in the miracle is this. In transforming the ritualistic stone jars, Jesus was saying that religion is dead. And he was now filling the jars with something new, with something better. The jars of ritual, the ceremonial water, the acts of outward purification, they've given way to a new internal cleansing that's available in Jesus. And through Christ, ritual and duty have been replaced by grace and blessing. Friends, this is the message of the sign that John wants us to see. Jesus brings joy, joy in abundance. Friends, do you know this joy? We live in a world today that's looking for joy in all the wrong places. And sadly, like the Jews of Jesus' day, many people still look for joy and fulfillment by trying to earn God's approval through external works and outward rituals, through religion. I'll never forget a few years ago having the opportunity to travel to Rome, Italy. And there in Rome, Italy, one of the sites you can visit is, is a place called the Scala Sancta, the Sacred Steps. And there at the sacred steps, which, which the Roman Catholics believe are 28 marble stairs brought from Jerusalem, which were the stairs leading up to Pontius Pilate's residence where Jesus' trials took place before his crucifixion. There at this church, pilgrims, hundreds every day, go and, and they climb the stairs on their knees, kissing each step and then climbing to the next step on their knees, one after the other, all day long, up and down on their knees trying to earn God's favor, trying to build up merit and, and good works to please God, to earn his favor. Friends, joy and fulfillment and peace with God doesn't come from external works of religion. You can only find these things when you experience that internal transformation of the heart, which only comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. The God who turns water into wine, who brings joy in abundance. Friends, he can quench your deepest thirst too. As Jesus tells us in John 7, 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Are you thirsty this morning? Is your joy running short? Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. We may live in a world short on joy today, friends, but Jesus has come to give us joy in abundance. And he invites you to, to drink deeply from that joy. Friends, this is the message of the miracle today. This is the message of the sign. Look to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. In Jesus, find joy and joy abundantly. Chaz read this earlier this morning, Philippians 4, verse 4. The Apostle Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, Rejoice. Friends, what does the word rejoice mean? It means to return to the source of your joy, to rejoice. Jesus is the source of joy. If you're thirsting for joy, turn to Jesus and discover joy in its full abundance. Let me close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much 
for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to look at this incredible sign and all that it means and conveys to us for our lives, for our faith, for our service of you, for our trust in you, our devotion to you. Lord, we thank you that the Apostle John recorded this sign for us so that we could recognize again that you truly are the God of all creation, the God of all power, but, but even more so that there is a message deeper be beneath this sign, a, a message of hope, a message of joy and joy abundantly found in Jesus Christ. Not, not, a, not a message of outward works and ritual and the need for purification, but the reality that in Jesus you've done something new in this world. You, you've replaced the externals of religion with the internal transformation and joy of the gospel. And I pray, Jesus, that all of us here today would know that hope, that joy, that is found in trusting in you as the, the means of forgiveness for our sins, as the means of a, a new relationship with our Creator, our Heavenly Father. And I pray, God, that we would walk in the abundance of joy as we know you and as we love you and as we savor you. Thank you so much, God, for this powerful passage. And I pray that we leave here inspired and transformed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I'm going to invite you to stand this morning for our benediction. And uh, today as you leave, let me remind you of two things. First and foremost, if you just remain standing where you are until our ushers dismiss you, that would be terrific. They'll be dismissing you row by row. Secondly, if you could help us this morning by taking your communion cup with you and, and disposing of that in the trash on your way out, that will really help our ushers as we prepare for the second service this morning. And now I leave you with these great words from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you, friends. Have a terrific week. Hi, everybody. Pastor Jason here. And I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church. You can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free. And you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests. And we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage, and we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.